I'm Matt Comstock. I have been coming to Northview a long time. Um, one of the things that happens at Northview is uh, we pray. We have a number of us that meet together and pray for the needs of the people of the church and other ministries. That occurs on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, and it occurs in the room across the hall right back there. You have the alcove for the kitchen, the next room. If you'd like to join us, that's where you'll find us. Um, this morning's reading comes out of Luke, and if you've been around the Gospels for any time at all, you've heard the story of the woman who came in to the Pharisee's house while Jesus was eating with him and uh, wet his feet with her tears and then wiped them with her hair. That sounds really awkward. <laughs> if you can imagine being at a dinner where that occurred. One of the takeaways from that is, you know, that last song, when, when we are enjoying our relationship with God, when, things, when we get to have an experience that goes tremendously well, God is right there with us, is the uh, keeper of all joy in his heart. Um, this morning, was, was walked out of the garage this morning to the car, and it's just looked out and like, this is gorgeous this morning. Uh, things like that. On the other end of the scale, when you are at the roughest spot in your life, Jesus is not taken aback. He doesn't find it awkward. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is uh, verse 34, and then we'll jump to verse 36 in Luke 7. Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped him with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Thank you, Matt. Good morning. Welcome this morning. My name is James, one of the pastors here, and we are so glad you could join us if you're here for the first time. A special welcome to you. There was a, a story a few years ago that went viral in many newspapers, and it was a story about two strangers having breakfast together at a McDonald's. Uh, a young man named Eric was sitting down by himself for breakfast when an elderly woman named Jan, who was also grabbing breakfast by herself, uh, approached him and asked if she could eat with him since they were both eating alone. And the news story says that they chatted for about 45 minutes, and she asked many questions about this young man's life. They talked about church, they talked about their family, about his kid, and they had a good connection. And then someone awkwardly sitting nearby took a photo of it and then posted online. They overheard, like, this is so cool, took a photo, posted online, and this somehow went viral, and news media and other people started picking it up. And millions of people read this story at the time just a few years ago. 
And it was considered this amazing story that was so touching, and people were blown away how two strangers could have a meal together. In fact, McDonald's was so inspired by it that they had this plaque made and put on that very table that says this. It says, the community table. We are all one community, and so we dedicate this table to enjoying a meal with a friend, old or new, in honor of Jan and Eric. Now, it's cool what they did, definitely, but amazes me is how it went viral is such a big deal. I mean, what is wrong with a society when it is such a big deal when two strangers simply have a meal together? Like, why is that considered so radical? Why is that newsworthy? It goes viral. And I mean, I guess because it's so rare today that people would sit down for a meal with someone else. And yet everyone has that built-in desire to eat with other people. And while there's some of us who would be mortified if a stranger walked up to us to have a meal with us, similar to when the guy, that weirdo on this airplane seat next to you tries to talk to you. I am that weirdo. Um... (laughs) And uh, people want to move away. But most people, though, crave connection, right? And and many people are left thinking, reading that story, that, man, I wish someone would come sit with me and and talk to me. But why is it so rare that we're willing to have a meal and sit down and be with a stranger? I mean, I can understand for those outside of the church, but for those who are Christians, I mean, this is literally what Jesus did. This should not be a rare thing for us who follow Christ. It's literally what he did over and over and over again. And and we are called to follow his example. So a community table shouldn't just be a random thing at some random McDonald's. This should be every single one who calls themselves a follower of Christ. It should be our dining table in our homes. It should be every one of our homes. And so this morning, we're in our series called Hashtag Blessed. It doesn't mean what you think it means, meaning that it's not just about what we receive, but we're following the biblical mandate that we are blessed to be a blessing. And if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been in this book by David Ferguson called Bless. You can, there's still some copies left in the, in the foyer you can pick up. That's an acronym on, on B-L-E-S-S. And we, a few weeks ago, started with B. You begin with prayer, looking the need to seek the Lord and to pray for those of our neighbors and coworkers who don't know the Lord. And the last couple of weeks, we've been on the L for listen, for listening well. And if you missed last week's, the best before on listening, I'd highly encourage going back, picking it up on YouTube or on Facebook or on our podcast and checking it out. Because if we don't know how to listen well, and, be, and I gave a, I think a relatively challenging message on that, the rest of this really doesn't make sense. Just having a meal with someone isn't really going to make much of a difference if we can't actually listen well. In fact, it might actually go poorly and be worse than having a meal to begin with. But this week, we're on the E of bless, and that stands for eat. So we're looking at the significance of sharing a meal together today, especially for those with those who are not actively following Jesus. Now, according to recent studies, people who eat regularly with others, it has a massive impact. People who do so, they tend to be happier in life. They tend to have less depressive thoughts. They tend to communicate better. The studies have shown that people that eat together laugh more. They have a better self-image. All are true of people who regularly eat together with others. And they've done a number of studies on kids who eat together with families, and they found that kids who do are much less likely to struggle with depression or are much more likely to express their feelings. You see, the dining table, whether in a home or a coffee shop or or maybe at a bench on a park, it's one of the most transformative places in the world. In my experience, the greatest degree of connection and discipleship doesn't happen in a church. It doesn't happen in a Bible study. It doesn't happen in my office upstairs. It happens around a dining table. When we moved here to America uh, a couple years ago, 
we thought we were coming to an empty house here in, in Seattle, and we had rented this house, and it was completely empty. We were planning on, you know, just buying. I was going to, on the way, stop and pick up some uh, air mattresses from Walmart or something like that. And when we arrived, we, we heard it had been furnished. Well, we arrived to a completely furnished home. Every room filled with stuff. It was amazing. We were just in tears. A whole room filled with toys for our boys. And of all the things and the things we were grateful for, the one that, that I've been the most grateful and the one that gets the most use was that... Uh, especially for the sake of the kingdom and for our family and for others, is, is the Templins went and picked up a 10-seater dining table for us that John refurbished and fixed up. And every single day, we get to use that. And over the last couple of years, we have hosted hundreds of meals at that table. We, have, we host, on average, about two meals a week that we try to do, on average, because we recognize that, that the beauty of that, with endless hours of connections and countless friendships that have been built over that dining table, and of strangers that have become friends and friends that have become family and I get to minister so much at that dining table, far more than I do upstairs in my office or any other place, because the dining table is a, is a sacred place that God uses, again, for our family and, and for friends and for those who are not yet family and friends that become family and friends as a result of sharing a meal together. Scripture shows us that sharing a meal together is central to the kingdom of God and us living out the ways of Jesus. Story after story of Scripture describe Jesus sharing meals with others. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, pretty much every single part of that Gospel prior to the resurrection or to the, the, the crucifixion story, every single story is either Jesus at a meal, walking to a meal, or just leaving a meal. I mean, the entire book is surrounding around meals that Christ has with people and, and the conversations around that. And so almost of all the stuff that Jesus did, what's also fascinating, of everything that he did, the most controversial thing he did was who he ate with at those tables. Nothing made people more angry of all the things Jesus did than the people that he shared a meal with. Nothing was more scandalous than the people that he shared a meal with. Jesus created space at his table. Whether it was in his home, whether it was on a mountainside, or more frequently the people that he invited himself into the homes of, Jesus created space where outsiders became insiders. For those who felt on the outside recognized they had a family in him and they belonged. The t- The table for Jesus became a place where people belonged. Those who didn't have a home had a home in him. And because back then, and even still today, the table is a place of belonging. Pastor and author John Tyson, he talks about this a lot. He says, the table is one of the greatest places for people to encounter Jesus' scandalous love. You see, people are aching to belong. We've talked about this recently. People are longing for a place of connection to be known, to to be on the inside at the table over a shared meal and fellowship. If done well, it's a place where we find that we belong. That's how sinners and tax collectors felt sharing a meal with Jesus over and over again, where the outsiders became insiders as they shared a meal with Christ. Pastor John Tyson points out that psychologists have shown that human lives are defined by who is in and who is out. And it's what we've we've called a circle of empathy. Or people have an in-group, as psychologists describe it. The psychologists show that when someone is defined as being in your group or in your circle of empathy, our brains are psychologically wired that they will switch an allocation of compassion that we show people towards those that are in this circle of empathy. And what it means is we withdraw our empathy from people outside of our circle of empathy, and we put it towards those who are in that circle of empathy, those who are inside. And and while it has many consequences, it's it's necessary in order to build community. You have to have those people around the inside that you spend time and connect with. 
But on the negative side, we are, what we are perpetually doing as humanity is building a society where we remove empathy from strangers and those who are outside, and we allocate it towards those who are inside. And so it takes incredible effort and intentionality to not do that, to actually include people in that space. And sharing a meal with people is one of the very best ways to draw people in and for acquaintances to become friends and then family. You know, so much of hookup culture and promiscuity today is people searching for places of connection, searching for people that will, that will identify them. So much of the goth movement and drug movement and, and the astronomical increase in LGBTQ identification, all the rest of it, is people seeking a place of identification for people to be seen and be known and be loved for who they are. People so badly want to belong. They want to be part of community. They don't find it somewhere. They'll go find people that will give it to them. Even so much of hate groups, of white supremacist groups and Antifa groups, aren't so much linked, linked to the ideology of When you have conversations with people in those places or gangsters that I've worked with for years, it's not actually a shared ideology. It's a shared place of connection more than anything else. They're looking for a place where they belong. There's an ache for welcome in the world and for us to belong at the core of our hearts. And for us who follow Jesus, we must learn to meet that ache with the scandalous love of Christ. Amen? And historically, and what's exemplified in Scripture, one of the very best places, the very best ways to meet people in that ache and in that longing is at the table. It's a shared meal together. We see it all throughout Scripture. Sharing a meal, a fellowship together to love and listen is where we make those connections so deep and so beautiful. Just think anytime you're interested in a girl that's dating or a guy, what's the first thing you want to do to make more connection? You go on a date. You go to a meal. You go take someone else. You know in that place, there's that place of, of simplicity around food where we're able to connect more and build relationships. And in ancient, ancient times, it was no different. In fact, it was even more so. In ancient times, to share a meal with someone was more than just have a meal. It was actually to say that you accept them. To share a meal was to say this person is like family. To share your home with someone is that truly declaring that these outsiders have now become insiders. And in fact, that's why the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians gets so angry at the Apostle Peter, who was the leader of the church. When Peter was not letting the, stopped eating with the Gentiles and only ate with the Jews, Paul publicly rebukes the leader of the church in front of everyone and even calls him out in a whole letter of the, of the epistles and talks about this because of how horrific that was. Because what Peter was declaring was these Gentiles were outsiders. They were no longer welcome at his meal. He was no longer going to eat with them, which meant they had no value to him. Sharing a meal was massively significant. And Jesus understood the significance of meals together. And as you read through the Gospels, take note of how frequently, how constantly, the messages and the stories of the Gospel happen around meals. The table is central to the ministry of Jesus. It's no surprise that Jesus says this of himself. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's how he describes himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And yet you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how Jesus describes himself. As the Son of Man, he uses that language as a phrase he uses frequently, going back to the time of David, but as a way of describing the incarnation, that he is the Son of Man. He has come in his full humanity, 100% God and 100% human. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And yet they called him a drunkard. But Jesus came spending time with the marginalized and the outcasts, 
with the wealthy and the poor, the strong and the weak. In fact, the passage is so amazing. Now, this is a passage that Matt read as we opened. And one of the reasons it's so amazing is the very next verse after this is him saying, after he's saying he came eating and drinking, the next line is Jesus is having a meal at a Pharisee's home. And that's the story we just read. And you'll notice, first of all, that Jesus doesn't just invite people to his own home most of the time. In fact, oftentimes, he's eating with people in very different places. And frequently, he invites himself to other people's homes and meets in other homes. And I I emphasize that because we're talking about sharing meals. I know a lot of people start tuning out and saying, well, I can't do that because my home's a mess or I don't have a home or I live with a bunch of roommates. That's not an option for me. You don't get that, that out in this sense because Jesus rarely ever invites someone to his home right, to his personal home. We actually, we don't even know where that was necessarily, what that looked like for him, of where, because he was always on, on traveling. But he's always going to other people's homes. And so you don't need your own home to do this. But while Jesus is eating with this self-righteous Pharisee, a man who literally in a few days will be touting for Jesus's death and crucifixion, right? This is a man who is not on board with what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is in his home having a meal with the self-righteous Pharisee, And Jesus is chilling there, likely in the courtyard that surrounds their home. He's there having a meal with this guy, relaxing, reclining. This immoral woman, as she's described, rocks up. She's known as being immoral, which means she was either publicly involved in adultery or she was publicly known as a prostitute in the area. She had no value in that community. And as Jesus shares a meal with this Pharisee, this outsider, this immoral woman comes to the meal as well, and she becomes an insider as well as she encounters Jesus. It's such an incredible picture at this meal of the contrast, the moment of the pious Pharisee, Jesus reclining, and this immoral woman washing Jesus' feet. All of them receiving the full attention of Christ. All of them experiencing the scandalous love of Christ at that table. And while there's so many stories of Jesus in the gospel surrounded with, with around shared meals and, and ministering to others, what really stands out to the original audience, and it should for us, is how frequently Jesus is pursuing outsiders at these meals. It's not just with the disciples. It's so frequently Jesus is reaching out to those who don't know him and to those who are hurting, just like he did to that woman. The most famous example we find of this, we've looked recently at this, is Matthew chapter 9. I want to jump there again. We looked at this one a couple weeks ago. Matthew chapter 9 says this in verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, he says. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Literally, it says tax collectors and sinners there. But 12, when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. So here, Jesus invites one of the most hated people in the city to become one of his disciples and to follow him. That's Matthew. And that's crazy enough, but Jesus pursues a wealthy, exploiting tax collector who's betrayed the poor, the very people Jesus says he cares for. He's stolen from them. You see, at that time, no one had compassion on tax collectors. There wasn't anyone saying, hey, they really need some help. We really need to go love the local tax collectors. No one cared about them. They were evil. They were rejected by all the people. And not only that does Jesus call him, but then he goes to his home for a meal. And because he's such an immoral person, 
He's been rejected by everyone in the city who are the only friends that Matthew has as other tax collectors and prostitutes and drunks. Those are the only friends he has because no one else would hang out with this disreputable person. And what I love about this is most people in those circumstances would never think to invite a rabbi teacher to a home where the meeting is filled with stolen food and wine with a bunch of tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. But why does Matthew do it? Because he recognizes the way that Jesus has seen him. And he knows that Jesus will see his friends the same way that he's been seen by Jesus. And so he invites him into this party that no right rabbi would ever consider going to. And Matthew has no doubt that Jesus will love his friends as well as he's been loved by Jesus himself. And so at this meal, while Jesus is reclining with the tax collectors, with the hated sinners of the, of the, of the group, of the city, there's no sign that he's uncomfortable. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's reclining, he's enjoying himself. It's why people labeled him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A phrase they meant as an attack to hurt him, but he wore as a badge of honor. And Jesus is always pouring out his heart towards the hurting and to those who are far from him. And as they're having a wonderful time, then the Pharisees, the religious leaders, show up, saying, how can you eat with such scum looking around the room? This garbage that you're spending time with. And Jesus delivers this epic truth bomb and says, I've come not for those who know, I've come only for those who know they are sick, not for those who wrongfully believe that they are healthy. And he tells the Pharisees, whose entire lives have been devoted to religious piety, to following all these practices and doing all these kinds of offerings to make the world think and look like they are righteous in every way. Jesus says, what matters so much more than all of your efforts to look good what really matters, he says, is showing mercy to those who are hurting and lost in sin. Jesus is always pursuing those on the margins, the outsiders. And that's what makes people so angry. It's those who feel unseen, those who are hurting, and those who don't yet know him. And even when he's spending time with insiders, what is he always pushing them towards and calling them to do? Go spend time with outsiders. Go spend time, he's always admonishing them to go to those who are hurting even when he's with those who are close. One of those surprising meals that Jesus was part of was on his final journey to Jerusalem. By this point, Luke tells us that Jesus' face was set like flint to Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen. He was on a beeline. He was on a path. He would not be deterred. He was focused. He's heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. And along the way, the final stop he makes, this is literally the last story before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Scripture. The final story is he's walking through Jericho. And it says he's passing through Jericho. And he's passing through the city. Jericho was one of the wealthiest cities of the region. There were many palaces there. And so there were many very rich and many very poor as a result. Luke tells us the story as he's just passing through. It says in Luke chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So Jesus is just passing through, and this is the final story again, before the triumphal entry. And yet Jesus stops, and not just for anyone, but he stops literally for the most notorious sinner in a city filled with notorious sinners. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. 
And we spoke of this before, but Zacchaeus was not some cute wee, wee little man, as the, as the song often says that many people grew up singing. Zacchaeus was the most evil person known in that city. He was much more like Gollum. He was, he was this, this irredeemable person who was just disgusting and sinful, and no one outside of other sinners and wealthy elites would ever want to be around him. He's not just any immoral tax collector. He is the chief of all tax collectors in one of the wealthiest places in the area. His home would have been more opulent than any other homes in the area except for maybe the top levels of Roman government officials. Everything that he's offering, his home, all of his food, his beds that Jesus is making use of, is all bought with money stolen from the Jewish people. It'd be like going to the most exploitive businessmen of today, like maybe going to Jeffrey Epstein's private island for a meeting, or, or maybe going and having a meal with like Martin Shkreli, that farmer bro guy that went into prison for the stuff. But this is why Jesus pursues Zacchaeus, though. He is on the edges of the most unreached person imaginable. And the response of the people in verse 7, now these aren't evil people that are saying this. These are the people Jesus cares and loves for. The average person, they say this in verse 7, all who saw it began to complain. This isn't the Pharisees. And grumble, saying, he's gone to be with a sinful man. The people are angry. Jesus, you have one moment. Everyone's vying for his attention. And Jesus goes to the worst of the worst of the worst, the wealthy, exploitative rich guy. And not just to have a meal, but to stay the night in his home. The person most people in Jericho would say was the furthest from the truth. And Jesus doesn't wait for an invite. He invites himself into his home. And the story ends with Zacchaeus following Jesus over a shared meal and shared hospitality. Him encountering Christ and the scandalous love of God. Zacchaeus turns his life to the Lord and then spends all his money giving back and paying everything that is stolen. The greatest outsider of all becomes an insider. It didn't make sense to the world, because why would Jesus give a whole night and a day when everyone just wanted a second of his time? But Jesus pursued the most lost of them all. Now, there's so many other stories we could talk about if we had time, whether it be Jesus' biggest meal of feeding 5,000, the second biggest meal of feeding 4,000, or any of the countless other meals where he's sitting at meals with people who are lost and hurting and broken, often creating outrage because of the people that were present at the table, but during those meals together, Jesus is changing people's reality of insiders and outsiders. At a meal with Jesus, people find out that they have a place with him. They find out they belong, that they have a new family. And you've probably already guessed this, but we are called to live in love like Jesus. Sorry, I can't preach without that phrase, but it's true. Therefore, that's our calling. All of us are called to do what Jesus has done. Anyone who calls Jesus Lord, we are called to follow his example. To invite to the table those who are hurting and poor and broken and far from him and to share the life of Christ with them. Jesus demonstrated one of the most fruitful places to love others is around a meal. Whether that meal be in our homes or someone else's home, in a restaurant, on a mountainside, it doesn't matter. Some of us maybe have grown up in homes where mealtimes were not central. Maybe where family meals rarely happened, or maybe it's where mealtimes were a place of tension, where no one made eye contact, it was awkward, you just wanted to get away. And I recognize some from, for some of us, a mealtime together is considered really awkward and not fun. And be very careful about projecting that negative experience upon everything else, because that is not the way it was intended to be. Jesus shows the power of a shared meal of being in another's homes, whether it's by inviting them or being invited or inviting ourselves and gathering together. And he shows how much it matters. Again, especially with those who are hurting and are far from Jesus. 
A shared meal is one of the most impactful places to share life, for people to be seen, be heard, for outsiders to become insiders. And that's why the last couple of weeks we spent so much time talking about listening. Because if we have a meal and we don't listen well, well, we just might as well wasted the meal if it's just us talking. And it's a good rule of thumb, just as a reminder for everyone, if you missed some of the last couple of weeks, but if you're having a meal and you're having a meal with somebody else, remember, two hears one mouth, listen twice as much as you talk. Just basic rule of thumb that 90% of people seem to, unable to be able to follow. But if there's more, if there's four or six, another basic rule of thumb is see a conversation. Maybe this is more for the extroverts wired like me that have had to learn this the hard way, but see a conversation. There's more people, four or six or eight. See a conversation like a, like, a, like a piece of pizza or a slice of pizza. A pizza sliced into six pieces, there's six people. You get one piece. If you're sharing a meal, you shouldn't be talking more than the amount of people that are present. And that's okay. You're like, well, what, what am I supposed to say? Well, it's fine because you're not supposed to be saying a lot. You should be asking a lot of questions anyways. So it shouldn't be a problem. And if you're married, especially if you're an extrovert, a great exercise is ask your spouse if you're eating other people's slices. And if your spouse doesn't ask you, tell, you, tell them anyways. Just gently remind them. Sarah often will grab my knee and just, that's just a way of knowing. James, slow down, stop talking, right? There's a good chance we can grow more in listening. But notice here how often Jesus takes the initiative. He doesn't sit back and wait. He pursues people. And one of the greatest hindrances to genuine community and belonging is simply a fear of initiating. This is something I want to address because so many people are desperate for connection and belonging, and they're just waiting for an invite. And therefore, we as followers of Jesus, this is one of our superpowers, we must pursue and make the invitation. But if you're here, so many of us, we're feeling lonely, especially if you're wrestling with self-pity or depression and feeling unseen. And can I offer a suggestion? Don't wait for the invitation to come. And don't judge others as uncaring when it doesn't come. But invite someone else Follow the example of Jesus and pursue or invite yourself to someone's home or out for coffee. You know, in 25 years of ministry, I've heard countless times people tell me, you know, people are fake. No one really cares. It's, no one really cares about anyone. And when I ask them how often they've invited somebody to get together, usually I hear something, well, last year I invited this person twice and they said no. Right? And so I'm not doing it anymore. Or something I often hear is, no, I did. I invited this person out two times for a meal, and they never invited me back after that, so I've just ignored them because they never reciprocate. And so they're done pursuing. If I could just be honest for a second, in 25 years of ministry, I've shared thousands of meals with people. I've seen as a priority in Scripture. I'd say one in 50 or less is where someone invites me. Maybe one in 100 is where I get invited. Maybe I'm just too of a, of a difficult person that I don't get invited. But um, at least one, at the most, it's one in 50 of my invitations do I ever get an invite. If I waited for invitations, I would be a lonely, bitter person. It wouldn't be doing this. And for each meal that actually happens where someone accepts my invitation, there are probably five invitations that don't get accepted and don't actually happen in that way. And if I expected reciprocating invitations of everything I did, again, I would be a lonely, bitter person because it rarely ever happens. Rarely ever is there a reciprocation. This isn't my way of saying there should. It's in fact, it's opposite. This is the way we are wired. People are struggling. People are insecure. People are tired. And so as a result of it, I am fine with the fact that people don't do it because it means I get to exercise my superpower of Christian hospitality. One that's not that big of a deal, but seems to be a big deal that newspapers write stories about it when someone actually does it. But this is what should be normal for us as Christians. 
So many of those who, who we share meals with or, or we invite to our home shares it's the first time they've been to someone's home in such a long time. Christians, it's, it's like listening. This must be all of our superpowers of inviting people to the table, of not expecting reciprocations, of not judging others when they don't respond. You know, most of my experience is from living overseas, but even here, living here the last few years or a couple years, I've had the privilege of sharing hundreds of meals, even with people in this church, many of you. And there's many more. I put up the invitation and it never got accepted or never followed through. And if I were to get discouraged every time those invitations don't go through, I'd have stopped doing it years ago. But I recognize people are busy. They're insecure. They're, they're going through tough seasons. And there are some of you that I've offered invitations 10 or more times to that still hasn't happened. A couple of families, we've done it 10 or more times. And every time it's on the calendar, a kid gets sick or something happens. And it's still two years later, we're trying to get together. Because often for an invitation to work out, it's like the stars just have to align just right. It means you can't be sick. The kids can't be sick. You have to have no other programs going that night. There has to be nothing that interrupted. You have to have emotionally the space to. You've had a good day at work that day. You maybe need babysitters. There can be no family drama. And for all those things to line up, it might take 10 or 20 invitations for it to finally work out. But because I know the importance and I see the life of Jesus, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep going because I know and I've seen the power and the value around a shared meal for us to connect with people. So I just want to admonish us, do not stop offering invitations. Do not judge if those invitations go unresponded to. Do not judge if you have someone for 10 times and they don't ask you a single time in response, right? That means you have the gift of the superpower of hospitality to keep going and keep asking and keep loving. Sometimes we have excuses for why we can't do it. Here's some I, I hear regularly. Some good excuses that, of why we don't invite people to share a meal. One, I'm not comfortable having people in my home. You know, maybe it's too messy. Maybe it feels like too much work. Maybe your house isn't big enough. Maybe you have six flatmates. It doesn't work. In that case, fine. You don't need to do it in your home. Go out, as we talked about doing before. Go to coffee. Go to a restaurant. Or better yet, go to their home. Be honest. If your home isn't a good option, don't need to lie about it or make some weird excuse. Just say, I'm not comfortable and go to their home or go somewhere else. In fact, one of the things you can do is take food to someone else's home. That's one of the coolest things people have done for us over the last couple of years is not only they invite themselves over, they bring food with them so we don't have to prepare it and we can get the kids to bed on time. It's an amazing way to do it. Over the years, I've learned that when wanting to build relationships with people, specifically those who don't know Jesus, one of the best ways to connect isn't in my home, but it's in their home where they feel comfortable where they're at ease and where they're at rest. And so oftentimes I'll invite myself to other people's homes. I'll ask them for a meal and i say, can we do it in yours? Because I recognize in their home is where they're going to be safer. And if the reason to avoiding inviting people is because your home is a mess, please recognize that for most people, they feel far more comfortable in a home that's lived in than one that's in immaculate condition. Another excuse, I'm not a good cook. Neither am I, I'm terrible. Um, so grab a $5 chicken at Costco. Right, we did that the other night in a pack of rolls. Or buy a $10 crock pot, grab a thing of pork for 10 bucks, and for 10 bucks you can feed an army with, with barbecued shredded pork or something like that. My kids can learn. It takes 10 minutes to prepare. It takes a couple hours to cook. It's no big deal. You have a meal for an army. Everyone's satisfied. It's no problem. But the truth is no one will ever remember the food you made. Well, unless it's Jim Shaw making barbecued smoked ribs or, or beef. Like, I still remember that one. I can still taste those in my mouth. Sorry, Jim. But... Uh, most people will never, ever, ever remember the food you made. But they will remember the invitation. They will remember the time of communication and contact with you. Next one, I, I don't know what to say. Awesome. You're not supposed to say much anyways. 
ask questions. Get to know them. Grab the cheat sheet that we put back on your, your seats today from the listening week. Or go online and I mean, just get a book of questions. I grabbed 50 of them off a website and put them on our discussion questions on messages, sermon resources, and other 50 questions that you can just keep on your phone to just look at in advance or glance at the phone every once in a while. Just get some ideas, but just ask questions, open-ended questions, and be discussing with people and learning about them. Another big one, I don't have time. That's one of the biggest. But this week, we're probably all going to be eating about 21 meals this week. Invite someone to one of them. Or every other week, you have 42 meals. Invite someone to one of them. This is why I encourage our home groups to not meet every single week, but meet every other week. That way, every other week, you have space in your schedule that you can actually share a meal with somebody. And if you don't have time at least once a month to share a meal with someone, I would highly encourage you to take a look at your priorities and to think, how is it you've so overprogrammed your life that even once a month, you wouldn't be able to host a meal and bring someone in who could be encouraged and be loved? Another one, it's too complicated. Inviting people for a meal may mean you need to cater to food allergies and preferences and people who eat different and think different. And from my experience, I've seen so many people just get frustrated and say, oh, I can't do it. It's too much work. I don't know how to feed, I don't know how to feed gluten-free or dairy-free or this, or if they're from a different culture, I don't know what an Indian would want to eat or a Chinese person would want to eat or, or someone else would want to eat. So it's just too difficult. Can I just be honest again? Catering a meal and hosting isn't about you. It's not about your need to show off that your very best, I don't know, some casserole that's your favorite dish or, or some smoked thing that's your favorite dish. It's about loving people where they're at. If you, if you can't cater to someone's food preferences, it means you can't love them. If it overwhelms you, think just do something simple. Just do some snacky foods. Ask them to bring something in, but don't not invite people because you think it's complicated or because you have to clean, spend so much time cleaning your house or doing all this other stuff and you make it about you. Inviting people over is not a place to show off your house. It's not a place to show what a good cook you are. It's not a place to show off anything about you because it's not about us. It's about loving with the love of Christ. And so often we get so worked up and we can't host because we make it all about us and how we're going to be perceived. And we're called to love. And if they're from different cultures, then learn about their culture. Or maybe invite yourself over there instead. Their food's probably a lot better than yours anyways. Right? We, a couple months back, went and had dinner with our next-door neighbors, uh, an Indian family. Uh, amazing people. And they made the greatest butter chicken I've ever had in my life. And we had a fantastic conversation, a great time. And I told him, like, someday, can we, I want to hang out again, but I want to come early, and I want you to show me how to make that. Um, I, unless it's a secret recipe, that's better than any restaurant I've ever had. And so it was actually last night we finally got a chance to go back over there. It took over about two hours to make the thing. They showed us. We got to hang out and have fun, learn about their culture, spent a lot of time together, laughed, learned so much about them, and learned how to make the world's greatest butter chicken, which was an incredible experience, right? And they felt honored by it, right, because of us pursuing them and knowing about their culture. We were in their home. Our kids were playing together. It was an incredible time celebrating their culture and demonstrating the love of Christ. Whatever our hiccups are, ask the Lord how to engage more deeply with those around us. Lay our objections before him. We have so many excuses and reasons we can't do it. And ask how we can respond. Now, I do recognize there's some of us that are living in a whirlwind, and we are just trying to survive right now and barely breathing. In that case, just keep praying. Maybe put this one on a pause for a little bit. But for the rest of us, for practical application this week, if you don't already do this, I know some of you do this incredibly well, set up a meal to connect with someone who is hurting this week. doesn't mean the meal has to happen, but make the invitation this week, especially someone who's not walking with Jesus. Consider a neighbor, a coworker, the person that you've been praying for. 
and might take a month or two to make the meal finally happen, but make the invitation this week to get together for a meal. Whether it's your home or whether you're a teenager living at home, it could be inviting them to share a meal of your lunch table at school. It could be going to Starbucks or Visible Coffee or, or Taco Bell just down the road. But it could be their home or yours, but pray for them and then invite them and listen well. Amen? And so as we move to a close, I want to finish by looking briefly at the two most significant meals that Jesus invites people to. The first one being the most important, the most significant one that he shares about that we often talk about, the final meal before he's killed, and that's Jesus inviting people to the Last Supper. At that meal, he serves them first by humbly washing their feet, so he's service to them, and then he shares with them why he must give his life for them. And at that meal, Jesus breaks a piece of bread and tells them to eat it and says, remember me for this. And then he, he takes the cup of wine and has them do that. And it's recorded in account, the best account of this is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is recording, and he says it this way. In verse 23, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On that night when, his, when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. And here Paul says, And God and gave, gave thanks to God for it, that he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Notice, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Again, do this in remembrance of me. And here it is, as often as you drink it that cup of wine that they have with every meal. Jesus says, every time you come together and eat and drink, remember me. The meal is to be the place where until Jesus returns, every time we eat together, we remember his scandalous love. Where outsiders become insiders, where tax collectors and sinners and teachers and web designers and CEOs and rich and poor and painters are all part of the family of God. They all come together and are called to be his children. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, in his incredible book, Simply Jesus, he says, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory or some teaching. He gave them a meal. The meal is the key. It's the shared place of a meal, which to him is that place of representing his life and his death. And, and now he calls us to carry on his example. Continue by taking communion, which is so much more than a symbol we do once a month by taking a little piece of bread, a little cup at church. That's how we celebrate today, but it was so much more. This was a meal that was celebrated and shared almost daily in the homes of the early church. It blows me away the way some of us take communion over the years and have made it this weird kind of sacred, super special thing that must be done by a priest or by a leader, and it must be done this way with certain kind of bread and certain kinds of cups. None of that's from Scripture. Literally, it's a meal that was shared for, and as Christians tell us just before that verse, they're getting drunk at it. They're doing all sorts of other crazy stuff at this because it's just a meal that they're sharing. Not that you're supposed to do that stuff. They're rebuked for it. Just want to emphasize it. In case there's anyone thinking, well, hey, I want that meal, but no, that, they're rebuked for that part. Um, so the most central ordinance given to the church was to share a meal together and remember Christ. Why? Because Jesus knew it mattered. And there's no more central place than at the table where outsiders become insiders. We must come together, eat together, share together, remember his life and death as we love those who are hurting and those who are far from him. So we're going to finish this morning by taking communion together. But before we do that, I want us first touch on the most important meal invitation of all of Jesus. It's spoken of multiple times in the Gospels, but most clearly spoken of in the book of Revelation. Right at the end, as Christ returns, we have this, this, this passage in Revelation chapter 19. It says, 
Then I heard again, as he's speaking of John the Apostle, is sharing this revelation he has of the very end of time. And it says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. And the voice said, Praise the Lord, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. Here it is. For a time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared himself. That's us. We are the bride. She has been given the finest of pure linen to wear. That's our sins being forgiven. For the fine linen represents, by God, by, or represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And here is again, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. These are the true words that come from God. So what is this all about? And this is what Jesus is pointing everyone towards. Again, Jesus' use of the imagery here of eternity with him is what? A shared meal at a table. Do you get that? Where all who are children of God are welcomed. Every tribe and tongue can experience life in Christ. And it continues for eternity. So this is why we invite people to our tables. So that we may enjoy this eternal table together. Do you see that? For every people, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation can experience the life of Christ. That's the ultimate table that we invite people to. And so it's why we're going to continue inviting thousands of people to our dinner table in the following years. It's, it's why we're going to keep praying for those and listening well. It's why we will overcome any difficulty of preparing our home and getting the house ready and making moves, or making uh, uh, whatever food we need to be able to cater to whatever preferences people have. We're going to keep doing it because we're not just inviting to a table in our home. We're inviting to this table. The eternal table with Christ and all of us for all of eternity. Where Jesus is welcoming all who want to come. But it requires an invitation. Romans says that that invitation comes through us. Us extending that invitation. And often it begins by an invitation to a table in our homes. Are we willing to be awkward sometimes? Have a conversation and invite people in. Because an invitation to a meal at our home or at the office or at Starbucks or at Taco Bell is really an invitation to this meal where there's no more pain, no more heartache, no more confusion, no more tears. Amen. So who are we going to invite to this meal? Who are we praying for regularly they would join us at this meal? What inconvenience will we undergo to invite people to this meal? that those around us, neighbors and co-workers, could join us at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. All are welcomed, but they need our invitation. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you that right now, if you're watching online, this is your invitation. Right here, right now. If you've been hurting, if you're feeling far from God, if you recognize that the life you've lived has been primarily just serving yourself and you're tired of being Lord of your own life and you're recognizing that there's something real, that something's been stirring within your heart. Even as I've been speaking or over the coming week, the past weeks and months, you're recognizing there's something else going on. I want to tell you right now, the invitation is for you right here, right now to join us in experiencing life in Christ. If that's you, I want you just to pray with me right now and say, Lord, I accept your invitation. Jesus, I'm tired of being Lord of my own life. I want to experience your life and your love. Father, I offer my life to you. I want to turn away from my brokenness and my sins. Receive your life, your hope, 
and your joy. Lord, help me to walk with you, to experience your life. In your name we pray. Amen. If that's you and you just prayed that prayer this morning or online, please let us know. We'd love to walk with you and get you some resources. All right, time to finish up with communion. This morning we're doing communion a little bit differently. You see the communion is up front. In a moment we're going to come, and as you come forward, you can walk down the, come down the middle aisles and then go out around the side. But as we do this, we're doing it as a group form of communion as we've done a couple times in the past as we share communion together. And as we get up for a communion, it's also a bit different because we're going to finish here. We're not going to finish with a song of worship or with a final prayer or something. We're going to finish here. What we want to be able to do is come forward. We're going to have some steps up on the screen. And as you come forward, grab your communion, go back towards your seat, and then gather with three, four, or five other people and go through these steps of communion together. Can we throw those up there, Steve? Um, Go through the steps, which are basically going to have us reading through the passage. There we go. And you can use your Bible or those passages up there. And each person just take a step and go through it together. And as we conclude today, again, I recognize that we normally do it, but I want us just to come together, take communion, go through these steps, pray through these things. And as a final one, just pray for one another. If you're comfortable with that. If you're not comfortable with any of this, now is the, as soon as people get up, it's your perfect opportunity to slip out the back and, and run away. I get it. Um, some of you may do that, and that's okay. We're not going to judge you. Um, but please stay if you're able to. Or you can just say no, and you can just sit in your seat. You don't have to join this. No, we're not like some weird cult. You don't have to do this thing with us. But I encourage you to come forward. Go sit with a few people. Go through the steps, and then just pray for one another as you finish. And then linger. We got a while to the next service, talk to each other. This is the end of it. So you can get up at that point and run away, or you can linger, talk to people, or hang out with other people. All right? I just want to pray as we finish. Father, we thank you that it's your words that bring life. You brought us from death to life. And right now, I just pray, may you empower all of us, Father, by your spirit, not to be guilted or shamed, but to be empowered with the superhero power that you've given us, Lord to pursue others, to pursue with your life and your love the invitation to draw other people into your presence at our table. And so right now, Lord, as we go to your table, Father, of communion, may you impress upon us the beauty of your sacrifice, to remember what it is you've done and our calling to not just go alone, but to bring as many as we can to that table with you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so just slowly, you can just make your way towards communion. Head back to your tables, grab a couple people, go through the steps together, and then you're free to go. All right, thank you guys.